Well, good morning. It's a joy to be with you today. If you have a Bible, you can turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. I'm going to read verses 12 through 18 in just a moment. It's a joy to be back with you uh, here again at, at Bloomfield. I, I've had the opportunity to, to preach here a couple times and to visit here several times. I just wouldn't want to miss the opportunity to tell you how much I love your pastor. He is a a dear friend. I consider him a, a father in the faith uh, to me, and uh, he and his wife have had such an influence on uh, me and my wife that I can honestly say my kids have benefited from their ministry, and um, my kids know exactly what I mean by that because there are particular ways in which we instruct them and correct them that we basically learned from Richard and Sandy. And, and so uh, we're just very grateful for them. Uh, we love Nick and Jacob and Rachel and uh, are just so grateful for your leaders here. And I'm excited to open the word with you this morning. Uh, so look with me at uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 12 through 18. I'd like to read that for us and, and pray. It says, Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face, so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we can open it this morning and study it and be instructed by it. I pray that your spirit would be among us. Would you guide my words in preaching this text today? Would you unite our hearts around these truths? And Lord, would you do the work that we just read about in us even today, transforming us from glory to glory? And we ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You know, sometimes you can have a problem and not even know it. Maybe you don't even understand the nature of the problem until someone points it out to you. I was born with weak eyesight, and I did not know that or discover that until I was almost in high school. And the occasion of the discovery was I was sitting in church one Sunday morning, and I leaned over to my mom from near the back of the room, and I said, hey, what time is it? I was probably thinking the sermon was getting a little long or something. And I said, hey, hey what time is it? And, and my mom said, uh, there's a clock up at the front of the room, and it's pretty similar to the room we're in right now. And I looked up to the front, and I said, I can't read that clock. And my mom said, you can't read that clock at the front of the room? I said, no, nobody can read that clock at the front of the room. And I said, you're going to the eye doctor. And so we went to the eye doctor, and the, the doctor said, you're nearly blind. <laughs> I can't believe we've never discovered this. And uh, you basically need to wear corrective lenses the rest of your life. I'm wearing contacts today. Sometimes I, I wear glasses. Uh, my eye doctor has told me since that if, uh, if my eyes get uh, just a little bit worse, like one measurement worse, 
uh, he will have to declare me legally blind and I'll have to have a sticker placed on my driver's license. So I'm holding on by a thread, uh, but I never get near a car without, uh, without my glasses. I don't even walk through my house without my glasses. Uh, but it was simply a problem I had that I didn't understand and I didn't even recognize until someone else pointed it out to me. Uh, in the, the text we just read, we heard about a problem that plagues many people in the world today where they're incapable of seeing the glory of God. We're going to read about the particular glory of God that's revealed in Christ. And it's as if something is obstructing their view. It's as if something is keeping them from seeing the glory and goodness and kindness of God that's revealed to us in the gospel. So in the passage we read, Paul describes that problem And then he helps us understand the solution that God has provided. In the larger context of 1 Corinthians 3, Paul's arguing for how the new covenant that we have in Christ is superior to or greater than the old covenant. The old covenant referred to the promises of God made to Israel and the particular standards that God gave to his people in the form of the law, the law that was given through Moses. And as Israel lived under the Old Covenant in the uh, time of history that we have recorded in what we call our Old Testament, the prophets spoke of this new covenant that was to come in the future. You may remember Jeremiah in Jeremiah 31. He talks about how in the days of the new covenant, the law would be internalized. It would be written on the hearts of the people. Or Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 36, he says, In the new covenant, the Lord will put his spirit within his people enabling them to walk in obedience to his commands. And then in the New Testament, we read that Jesus himself is the mediator of the new covenant. This is explained in Hebrews 8 and Hebrews 9. And so it it seems in the context here, it seems that there were some false teachers in this early church in Corinth who were claiming that Christians were in some sense still bound to the old covenant. Paul's writing to correct that lie. And his argument is basically this, the law had a purpose, but it was not to bring salvation. It was a ministry of condemnation that revealed sin, but did not reveal salvation. By contrast, the new covenant, this new covenant that we have through Jesus Christ, Paul says it promises righteousness before God, it promises transformation by the Spirit, and freedom in Christ. So in the paragraph that we just read there, verses 12 through 18, the focus is not so much on the covenants as the experience of people who live under the new covenant versus those who lived under the old covenant. And and Paul's basic point is that the people who lived under the old covenant had a problem that they didn't even recognize. And so I want to walk through the passage we just read. And I'm going to do it under three headings. If you're you're taking notes, these would be three basic headings. We'll look first at the problem, then the solution, and then the result. So we'll look at the problem, the solution, and then the result. So look with me again at verse 12 as we hear about the problem that Paul describes here. He says, since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses. And he begins to refer back to Exodus 34, that we read earlier in the service. Uh, Not like Moses, who put a veil over his face 
so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened, for to this day when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, the veil lies over their hearts. So Paul's referencing the hope of the new covenant there in verse 12, and he says one of the implications of living under the new covenant is boldness. Back up in verse 6, he talks about this confidence that we have through Christ toward God, and that confidence before God gives us a boldness to others that ought to enable us to declare rightly the problem that separates them from God. So Paul draws particular attention to the problem for those who lived under the old covenant. They were separated from the glory of God. In other words, the the law that they looked to did not lead to life. And then to make his point, he uses this illustration from Exodus 34, uh, that story that we read earlier. It's kind of a strange story. Uh, In in the context of, of Exodus, this is after the golden calf, incident where the people had turned from the Lord to worship a golden calf, and Moses has gone up on Mount Sinai to receive the law a second time. He comes down with a a second set of stone tablets uh, containing the, the law written by God himself, and the people, when they see Moses, they see that his face is shining. It's, it's glowing. We don't know exactly Uh, what to make of that. But uh, what we can see is that that would be shocking to the people. We can, in some sense, understand their response. But that's Paul's point, that the problem was revealed in their response. Because here was a man, Moses, who had been in the presence of God. He was coming down with a message from God, and the people didn't want to hear it. They they wanted him to cover his face, because as we heard, they were afraid. So the, the people were frightened by Moses' shining face. So what does he do? He places a veil over his face. And we heard in that passage that he would continue to do that. Every time he would go into the tent of meeting, he would meet with God. He would be alone in the presence of God. He would remove the veil in, in the presence of God. And then when he came back out between uh, himself and the people, he would place the veil. So Paul picks up on that story and and particularly that image of the veil to make a point. He says in verse 15, that same veil remains over the hearts of unbelievers today, particularly the hearts of those who live under the old covenant. So that veil represented their spiritual condition before God. You think about Israel, they were free from Egypt, but they were still held in captivity by their sin. And that's the story we read in the Old Testament over and over and over. It even continued to play out until the days of Jesus. We heard about that in the second passage that Jacob read for us there in uh, John chapter 1. Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, the one whom the Old Covenant pointed to all along, he goes to his own, his own people those who have been supposedly waiting on him for generations. And John tells us in John 1.11, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. How in the world does that happen? Well, Paul interprets that here in this passage, what we read. 
their hearts were hardened by sin and hidden beneath that veil. They were incapable and unwilling to gaze upon the glory of God in the face of Moses in the days of Exodus. And they were incapable and unwilling of gazing on the glory of God in the face of Christ when Jesus came into their midst. You know, Paul wrote as one who knew this very experience, right? Remember Paul's story? Like his contemporaries, he did not initially see the glory of God revealed in the coming of Christ. He did not see that the glory of the old covenant was fading and the glory of Jesus was overshadowing it all. And he recognizes it was as if a veil was preventing him from seeing what was right in front of him. Now, this is fascinating to think about. It's, It's interesting to go back to Exodus. It's informative to look at the uh, first century Jewish people who rejected Jesus and give some explanation as to why they didn't recognize their own Messiah. But you may be wondering, what does this have to do with us today? It's all very helpful, thoughtful, interesting, but why does it matter for us today? And I think that the real significant thing I want you to note is, is what Paul explains in the next chapter. Because in the next few verses, what Paul is going to explain is that This is actually the true problem for all people who reject Christ. This veil that separated the people of Israel from the coming of their Messiah, from seeing the glory of God in the face of Christ, this veil continues to separate unbelievers from seeing God even today. Sin has hardened their hearts and blinded their eyes. And Paul explains that in the next chapter. Look at verse 3, uh, just a few verses down from where we're at in chapter 4 here. 2 Corinthians 4, 3. Paul says, even if our gospel is veiled, right? So he's using that same image there. It is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of of God. So unbelievers everywhere, every person you know who rejects the gospel of God and refuses to hear about the glorious mercy of Christ is in some sense experiencing what Paul describes there. Their hearts are hardened by sin and their eyes are blinded by Satan himself, the God of of this world, as Paul describes him. When you are blind, you just can't see what you can't see. You know, I I sat in that church for years, and I never once questioned that I couldn't see the numbers on the clock at the front of the room. I assumed that no one in the room was able to see what was up there. Sometimes you have a problem, and you don't even know it. You're not even able to recognize it. There may be some of you here today that, in the language of this passage, are living beneath the veil. You may know something of the things of God, but you don't know God personally. You may know some stories about Jesus, but you haven't seen his glory in your own life. Now, if that describes you, or if it perhaps describes someone you know and love, I have good news for you. Because we continue on in that passage uh, from John 1, the true light has come into the world. 
So in this passage, Paul identifies the problem of unbelief, and he describes it in terms of of being unable to see the glory of God. And then he points his readers to the solution. And that's the second thing I want us to note here is the solution. Uh, Paul describes the solution in in two ways, uh, in verse 14 and 16. In verse 14, he says, only through Christ is it taken away. And then in verse 16, he says, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. So it's through the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's through a person repenting of their sin and turning to Christ in faith, the veil is removed. We heard at the beginning of the service, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. It's the good news by which we are born again. That Christ died for our sins, was buried and raised, so that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, Scripture says you will be saved. When you turn from your sin to the Lord, and embrace that gospel by faith, the veil of separation is removed. It's a miraculous work of God. Paul describes it in personal terms in chapter 4. Look at verse 6. He says, God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It's his salvation. God shines his light in dark hearts through the preaching of the gospel. Your eyes are open, the veil is removed, and you see the glory of God in the face of Christ. That's what happens when a sinner turns to the Lord. Now think about the implications in contrast to what we heard in Exodus. In Exodus, only Moses experienced God face to face and only temporarily. Everyone else was on the outside of the tent waiting for him to come back. But John 1.14 says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we've seen his glory. Glory is as, as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. So in Christ, we have access to God apart from the veil. There's no separation anymore. In salvation, Jesus removes the veil and it's, it's like putting on glasses for the first time. Now, I, I remember getting my glasses and putting them on and looking at the world around me, and it was all of a sudden more vivid and bright and colorful than I had ever known. I have this very distinct memory of walking out on my family's uh, back porch. I grew up here in uh, Kentucky, uh, around Somerset area. I walked out on our back porch. We had these big, beautiful trees in our backyard. And I remember looking up at those trees. I remember putting my glasses on. And you know what I saw? I saw leaves. I saw bright, colorful, vivid leaves. I could see these little limbs coming out from the bigger limbs and from the trunk of the tree. And I could see a bird's nest. And I could see leaves coming off of the trees. And all my life, I had just looked up and seen these big green blobs in our backyard. And all of a sudden, I saw the leaves. That's what salvation is like. You you see what has been there all along, and it changes everything. I I think there are a few people in the history of the church that have summarized that better uh, than John Newton 
in uh, the song we sang a moment ago, Amazing Grace. He said, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was blind. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Newton wrote as one who understood uh, his blindness, and he understood the solution to his problem that we've been talking about. Uh, Prior to his own conversion, uh, John Newton was a a slave trader. He was involved in some awful things in his day. He was converted during a storm at sea, but he never forgot his previous blindness. He lived well into his 90s, and near the end of his life, he, he famously wrote, My memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things, that that I am a great sinner and Christ is a great Savior. If Christ is a great Savior, then knowing him and seeing his glory ought to radically change us. And that's what Paul describes in verses 17 and 18. So we consider the problem, we've we've looked at the solution, now I want to to spend the rest of our time thinking about the result of what happens in a person's life when God saves them. So let's look again at verse 17. Paul says, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. This is a bit of a puzzling statement here. Uh, The Lord usually refers to Jesus in the New Testament. Uh, But it's a bit difficult to imagine what exactly Paul would be saying if he's saying Jesus is the Spirit. Uh, that would seem to go against some of the other things that he, he teaches. I, I think what he's saying instead, as you think about these previous verses, uh, referencing the work of God in Exodus, uh, where the Lord would have referred to, to Yahweh, the God of all creation. I think what Paul is saying is that the Lord who met with Moses was and is the spirit who dwells within God's people today. Uh, In other words, what Moses went into the tent to see, you and I in Christ have access to every minute of every day. That's the glory of the new covenant. In Christ, under the new covenant, Spirit of God indwells the people of God. Paul talked about this in Romans 8, 11. He said, if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. Now that's true, that the Spirit of the living God is now dwelling within his people. That ought to change us. That ought to transform us. That ought to make a difference in our lives. And so Paul says at the, latter, at the end of that verse, it leads to freedom. Wherever the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Now, it's not freedom to live however you want. It's freedom to know God and live for him. The, the veil has been removed and we see the glory of God in the face of Christ and we experience the freedom of true life in him. And it changes everything. So that last verse in verse 18, it, it really summarizes how this change happens in our lives. And, and I want to walk through it slowly. As, as we look at uh, each word in verse 18, I'll read the whole thing and then we'll, we'll go through it a, a line at a time. He says, We all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory 
to another. So remember in this chapter, Paul's demonstrating how the glories of the new covenant far exceed the glories of the old covenant. And you can, you can hear that in his concluding statement in verse 18. We all with unveiled face. So we all, as in all of God's people, all who have turned from their sin to the Lord to receive the gospel of grace, we all have access to God. Not just Moses, not just at certain times, but all of us. And we have access to him, not through a veil, not through a man, but we have access to him with unveiled face through Jesus Christ, the mediator of the new covenant. Well, what does that grant us access to? Paul says it, it enables us to behold the glory of the Lord. That, that word behold, it means to, to look at or to gaze at intently. So we're not just free to see God, to glance at God, but to gaze at him in worship. This is made clear in that uh, line in verse 6 of chapter 4, where Paul says, God has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We see that light and it changes us. It transforms us. There's an important principle here. There's something to, to think about. If you, if you think about yourself and you think, okay, I, I believe I embraced the solution long ago. I, I embraced the gospel long ago, but I, I don't feel that I've experience these changes and this transformation that this passage is, is talking about. Well, there's, there's an important principle here that I think can be helpful to you if that's your experience. The principle is this, that, that, that we become what we behold. We, we become what we behold. And, and that's true of anything that occupies your attention. So whatever you, you fix your gaze upon, whatever you focus your mind on, whatever it is you look to for life, that's going to shape you and change you and form you in some way. The biblical term for that kind of substitute God is an idol. I, I like the word that uh, Jared Bridges gave it in one of his books. He, called, he referred to it as a functional savior. It's about how many of us will turn to behold and look to functional saviors for life. Uh, Bridges explained that functional savior can be any object of dependence we embrace that isn't God. It becomes a source of identity, security, and significance because we hold an idolatrous affection for it in our hearts. And the, the thing I want you to see here is that if you start chasing something like that, it's going to change you. It's, it's going to transform you. you. Fix your eyes on pursuing wealth, for example. That pursuit will shape you as a person. You begin to view others as opponents. You begin to disparage your possessions as simply not being enough. And over time, your heart is molded by greed and envy. You fix your eyes on money, you become greedy. You become what you behold. You chase power, you can become harsh and demanding. You chase approval, you can become fearful and anxious. Now, this happens because we were made to reflect God himself. We are creatures who were made to reflect our creator. And if we don't reflect our creator, we will turn to something in creation instead. 
and you become whatever it is that you behold, whatever it is you fix your attention on. So in the passage, it's stated positively. When we turn to God and gaze upon his glory in Christ, it changes us. We begin to reflect Christ. We begin to look like him. And that's described in that next phrase. It says, we are being transformed into the same image. Being transformed there. There's this process of transformation brought about by God. And it's an ongoing process. It doesn't happen overnight, does it? It takes time. But the Lord is at work transforming us as we gaze upon his glory. And the scripture teaches that we don't merely receive this transformation, but we participate in the process. We're continually turning from sin to God over and over and over in our lives. It's described in Colossians 3 like this. Uh, You put off the old self with its practices. You put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. The same idea here in 2 Corinthians 3. We're transformed into the same image. We're created in God's image. Sin distorts that image. But we're restored in Christ in such a way where we're able to then once again reflect his glory to the world around us. So you put all that together. When you turn to the Lord, you behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, and the Spirit of the living God works in you in such a way that he transforms you. You become more and more like Jesus over time. But it's, it's not an instant change. It, it doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen in a moment of commitment. It's gradual. It's over time. And, and we heard that in verse 18. From one degree of glory to another. So we experience growth and progress and evidence of God's work in our lives. And then we experience some more. You turn from one functional Savior. You embrace the Lord and you hope in Him in that one area of your life. And then you discover another functional Savior that you've been looking to for hope that you didn't even recognize before. This is how transformation takes place. It's from one degree of glory to another. But notice, it it happens particularly the more you behold the glory of God. The more you behold God's glory, the more of your own sin you see. His perfection contrasts with your imperfection. His light reveals our darkness. You don't always see that kind of stuff by comparing yourself to others. But when you compare yourself to the matchless majesty of a holy, eternal, perfect God, you begin to see ways in which your own life doesn't reflect Him. I think the process looks something like this. You've probably gone to an eye doctor before and had your eyes dilated, right? My eye doctor's always wanted me to have that done. you know, every time you go in for your exam, they always want to know if you, if you want to have your eyes dilated. When you have your eyes dilated, what happens is dilation widens the pupil. It enables more light to get in so that the doctor can examine parts of your eyes that would otherwise be unseen. 
So, so letting in more light will sometimes reveal problems that have gone undetected in a standard exam. I think that's something of what Paul is describing here. As we gaze upon the glory of God, a similar process takes place. As we behold His glory, our hearts are dilated. They let in more of the light of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And we see ourselves for who we are. Sometimes it's hard. Sometimes it's hard to see that reality. But there's freedom here, right? Because once we see it, we can turn from it. And that's the last thing Paul says in verse 18. This comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So this process of transformation is brought about by the Holy Spirit, who gives life to God's people. His ministry is not to condemn, but to empower believers to live holy lives. That we might fulfill the righteous requirement of the law as we live according to the Spirit. That's the result of salvation. And each step down this path, Paul says, is a step toward glory. So my encouragement to you this morning is is to recognize how God is at work in your own life. As he works through his Spirit to make you more like his Son, Recognize how he is at work transforming you from one degree of glory to another. You may be taking small baby steps toward glory, or you may be making large leaps. But we can be grateful for the work that God is doing. We can participate in this process, and we can trust that he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion. That for all the sin we find in our own hearts, his mercy is always more. I think back in in closing to Newton's famous confession at the end of his life. He said, I am a great sinner, but Christ is a great Savior. I want to tell you, you can't truly confess the second part of that truth, that Christ is a great Savior, until you've really recognized the first, that you yourself I, myself, am a great sinner in need of God's mercy. So perhaps today you hear this passage taught, you hear this description of a person who is lost in their sin, dead in their trespasses, does not know the glory of God in the face of Christ. Perhaps in the language of what we just read, you're living beneath a veil. My encouragement to you today is would you turn to the Lord? in repentance and faith, and embrace the gift of salvation offered to you through the gospel. Perhaps you know the Lord, but when you hear some of the language of this passage, you think, man, my life is not marked by freedom. It's not marked by transformation. Maybe you need to turn away from some functional Savior in your life that you've been looking to for hope. And maybe you need to once again embrace the hope of the gospel that that, that shines the glory of God to us. Uh, So uh, Nick and the band are going to return here in a moment after our prayer. I want to just invite you to use this time to repent, to respond, to reflect on the mercy of God in Christ. Let me pray for us.